Shacklock. What a man. He's a producer, he's a songwriter, he's a guitarist, but he's a rock god. Welcome to Radio Richard. Oh my gosh. How, how do we follow that one? I don't know. Thank you. Uh, well, let, let me get this out of the way, first of all. I want to thank you for some things. Uh, I want to thank you for this one thing. I don't know whether you can see that. Ah, beautiful. And I don't know whether you can see this, but I want to thank you for both of these. These are milestone man milestone breakthroughs that i teach from uh, my wow. students uh the invisible artist for me was a book that was so needed in in our circles i, I also need to thank you sorry again for the absolute magical brilliant arrangement that you did for a production that i was involved in for the who's singer roger daltrey yeah uh, we were so blessed to have you come in and we were so blessed in a way to have the players that we were at, we had at that time kenny wheeler and and stan salzman and wow. actually stan and i went to college together we went to the royal academy wow together. i didn't know that yeah uh we were we were buddies there because uh, a little story for you on your listeners i went uh to the academy from 68 to uh, 72 so i was a little, little bit before you yeah but the academy uh how can i put this politely so i don't get uh people attacking me don't be um, Go ahead. It, it was fairly highbrow it was a kind of a highbrow school i won a full scholarship my majors were classical guitar and actually composition i, I lucked in to uh, John Gardner, not John Elliot Gardner, John Linton Gardner. There's two good. John Linton Gardner was a, a, a composer in his own right. He had composed music, uh, operas. Uh, he used to go to Mo the Mozart schools, the Austrian schools, and conduct the Vienna choirs. And I really lucked into this guy. He he took an interest in me. He said because I was illiterate of the classical repertoire. Yes. So he said he would rectify that by the time I had graduated. So I came out really knowing the orchestra and being fascinated with that instrument. So when I, when I was 10, I got a guitar. When I was 12, 11 and 12, I had a friend I used to play with on, on right by my neighborhood. His name was John and he, John told me, his brother and he were getting bass and drums for Christmas. This would be John Glasscock of later of probably your listeners would know Jethro Tull eventually. Of course, absolutely. And the Chicken Shack. His brother ended up in a great group, one of my favorite groups called the Motels. We formed a little trio. Uh, my mother came home from work one day and said, there's a lady at work whose son has guitars and equipment. His name is Michael. Uh, would you like me to get in touch with him? And I said, yes. I said, write down his equipment. So she wrote his equipment down. He had Hofner guitars. He had Westminster, Watkins Westminster amplifiers. You know this right. stuff. So I was thrilled. So I got on my bicycle. I went to his house in Lockley Crescent in Hatfield. And I said, are you interested in, in joining our band? He knew the others anyway. He was the same high school. And he right. went, no, but I really want to be a soccer player. So I said, okay, well, just if you reconsider, um, you know, he said, I only know two chords. So I said, well, listen, I, I know several chords and B7. This was a big deal. Wow. This, this was a big deal in those days. So yeah. I, 
I, I tried to lure him with B7. Well, eventually he joined. That Michael was Michael Taylor, who ended up in the Rolling Stones. Indeed, um, yeah. So we had a band. We got signed when I was 13 to EMI. Uh, John was 12, Mick was 14. We formed a little group called the Juniors, and we were we got a record out on EMI. You know, we got we had to go to Manchester Square to uh, audition. Yes, yes. <laughs> and we got the three grumpy old men the other side of the desk with the tires and the pens. You know the nice. ones. I know them well. You probably came up against those guys, and they just looked very burnt out this after we played a couple of songs, and then one of our dads was bold enough to go, "Okay, did they get signed?" Then and he and he and he said, "Oh yeah, yeah." So we made a record. We went to Lansdowne uh, Studios to make the record, which was pretty nice. pretty big right then because the Dave Clark Five were making stuff in in that studio. Yes. Uh, we didn't get into Abbey Road, unfortunately, at that time. They tried to get us on the Ed Sullivan Show and did uh, actually get booked on the Ed Sullivan Show with Dave Clark. Wow. And they did not put us on because we couldn't get visas. We were too young. I, I went on to learn. Uh, I, a friend of mine could read music. I couldn't read music at that time. I could read a chord chart, but I, I really wanted to study the guitar properly. Sure. So I went back to high school, got my high school diploma, and I took up classical guitar for, to do to do private lessons. And then I eventually took an audition to the academy. Now, while this is going on, at the age of 17, I was a year out from going to the academy. A friend of mine called me and said, listen, <laughs> I know you're a big fan of Albert Lee, the guitar player, which I, we all were. Sure. He said he's playing with a group called Chris Farlow and the Thunderbirds right now, and wow. he's he's leaving the group. We just opened for, for them, and uh, Albert's leaving the group, so they're looking, and he said, I've recommended you to play. I went out for an audition, and I made it clear to Chris Farlow and the band, who at that time were Carl Palmer from Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Indeed, yes. Um, and Peter Solly, who came, actually called himself Shelley, but he he became a producer also for the Romantics later. Right, right. Your listeners might know. It all yeah. changed along. So anyway, we got to the the, the back of the proverbial pub in Islington, and uh, there were about 75 guitar players waiting to play. So my dad said, I was with my father because I was 17, you know, so uh, he said, let's go and get some breakfast. So I, I said, we'll come back around five. So actually, interestingly, uh, Jimmy McCulloch also was with us who was my dear friend from that time, right. uh, God, God bless. Um, we had gone together really pretty much to that audition. And it turned out that it was between Jim and I who got it. And I said, look, <clears throat> take Jim because I, I can only stay a year because I'm going, I've got to, you know, I'm dedicated to the Royal Academy of Music. Right, right. So they went and had a powwow and they said, well, listen, Jim's great, but... Alan's a bit closer to Albert, so I, you know, I used to cop all his licks like we all did when where, wherever we could. Hell yes! I stayed with the band about a year, made a, one or two recordings, painted black. Uh, he did a Stones version because Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were very involved in Chris Farlow's career. Yeah, with composition and production a little bit. Yes. With, yes. He had a number one with one of those songs called Out of Time. That was before my time. When yeah. my time was painted black, I did a single and then we did nice. a, the B-side. So, And that was actually uh, Arthur Greenslade, the arranger. 
Right, right, so right, indeed. That really made me really start to raise an eyebrow on, on arrangers. And I, I believe uh, indeed. Kenny Clare was the drummer on the session. And, wow. and I believe Jimmy Page was hanging out um, on the session. And uh, sure. uh, we had a great player, uh, God bless, Big Jim Sullivan, who oh, right. yeah. did, did everything in those days. And if you look up that that discography, you'll find he was on pretty much every record. Everything, you know, he was pretty as, as you know, and of course I looked up to these guys, you know, and I started getting booked on sessions with them. Uh, there was a producer called Mike Hurst. Right, I, I know him, yeah, sure. actually came out of the Springfields. Uh, yeah, which that's right. The listeners may know Dusty Springfield. <laughs> and Mike, Mike actually started booking me. He said, can you read a chord? Uh, I said, yes, I can. He said, I said, I can read notes as well. <laughs> so he started, you know, giving me some work. So yeah, that, great. That, that sort of trigger. Anyway, um, during the Chris Farlow time, you're about six months in, uh, Carl Palmer moved on to the crazy world of Arthur Brown. Right. And, and gave the gig to his friend, John Bonham. Right. So John Bonham played with us for about a few months before he joined Led Zeppelin. And right. we, had a, we had a conversation and John said to me, listen, I'm only staying about four or five months because I'm forming a group, Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones. Yeah, a group. And I said, I said, they'll never do it, John. I said, they won't do it. I said, they're earning so much money in sessions. Because they, John Paul was playing every session. Yeah. As well, and, and a brilliant arranger as well. Yes, 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 indeed. In his own right. So he, he said, oh, we're doing it. He said, they're committed. And we've got this kid from uh, uh, England called Terry Reed to be the singer. Well, Terry Reed went on to his own solo career and had a, an American tour booked at that time. So he followed in and honored his solo tour. And they gave the job to a, a gentleman called Robert Plant from. Uh, yeah. About a year later, when I was actually at the Academy, um, <clears throat> I saw John per se and in and, and, and a pub near the Academy's near Madame Tussauds, if you if your listeners, Baker Street. Alan, what you doing? I said, Well, I'm just coming out, you know, I've been to college. And I said, Did you ever form the group? This was 69. He said, Oh yeah, we've been to uh, New York. And I said, Well, did you did you name the group? He said, Yeah. He said, We were going to call it the New Yardbirds. <laughs> Eventually, our manager said we went down like a lead balloon in New York. So call it Led Zeppelin. I said, "You're kidding me." Fantastic. That was that absolute story, and that was absolutely true. Anyway, we kind of kept in touch loosely, you know, because John passed on, and you know, sadly, um, but we kept in touch loosely. Now, why? If we go to the academy a second, where I really started to sort of get interest, I was already interested in. In, in the pop music of our time, which was sort of influencing us. Yes. And I, I got really interested in the arrangers because I, I, your book here, this book, everybody buy this book. Thank you so much. I, I'll That's pay you later. Absolutely incredible. Absolutely great uh, musical examples and, and digs in deep. So get into that book at the time. And I was getting fascinated with what, you know, we all were, what was coming out of Motown, what was coming in our stacks? Sure. What was coming out of high records with Al Green and all that stuff? And of course, it was all arranged. It was it was horns, strings. Uh, it was all the stuff. And Absolutely. When 
the Funk Brothers came to England, which was the Motown band. We knew all their names. We knew what they did. And it was lucky that you did because their names weren't on the records, which is you, you had to do a lot of work to find out who those guys were. You know, we were just fans at the time of, of anything coming from America because they were better than us. They, 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 you know, we were when when we started getting the Motown across and, you know, dancing in the street, it, it was all over. You know, it was like, OK, what are they doing? What are they doing? So we dug in and, of course, found out the names like Paul Reiser and David Van Der Pitt, who are also in your book and very honored in there. And, you know, a 19-year-old trombone player from Detroit was, was you know, making those arrangements. Right. Fascinating and inspiring to me, thinking, okay, maybe I can do this. I know I'm going to cop his licks. I know I'm going to, you know, cop the stuff. And, of course, we were right in that period where the face of music obviously was changing. We, we, we'd had the Beatles and we have the Beatles. We always have the Beatles. And so George Martin, of course, you know, was the genius, the, the invisible artist in there. Absolutely. He was that invisible artist. He, you know, he, people didn't, he was not a household name until really, you know, of late when people started to realize, okay, man, we didn't realize this guy was a genius before the Beatles because he's at, he'd actually done arrangements on comedy records like so Bernard, we had Bernard Cribbins, we had Charlie Drake. Splish Flash, Bernie Cribbins did. Uh, Peter Sellers. Right, said Fred. He had Sophia Loren, Peter Sellers, and he did, uh, you know, Goodness Gracious Me, which now would probably be banned. Yes, it would. It would never get through. Never get through the the, the census. And but I make it, the I make the point, Alan, in it, my book. I, I make the point, Alan, in my book that uh, it is amazing and mind blowing that George Martin was never once listed as the arranger on any Beatles record when he did 99% of the arrangements on the records. Unbelievable. And played on, you know, uh, played, played the electric piano on and booked the greatest musicians in the world. It was, we had Dennis Brain, we had uh, Piccolo B flat trumpet on. That was him. The Beatles didn't know what a Piccolo B flat trumpet was. No. They, they didn't know what a string quartet was. No. So, but I but I think that it, this is this is wonderful to uh, to realize that you know some of us were listening to the records and enjoying it, whereas you and I and we're roughly the same age. We were listening to the records. We were thinking, wait a minute, how did they do that? Let's figure it out. Let's yeah. analyze it. Yeah, and so uh, as kids, that's what we were doing. And and you were lucky because you got training early, so you could you had more tools to analyze. Yeah. Radio Richard. Share, subscribe, even donate. Wanted to live in the shadow of Jack Nietzsche, wanted to live in the shadow of Arif. I think the very first one that, that hit me, I, I don't know what, I'm, I'm sure this happened to you, but, but there's, a, there's a book called My Brain on Music yes. that I, I really love. And, it, and it, it, it kind of explained what was happening to me when I was two and three in my childhood because I would get an unexplainable shudder through my body when I heard a chord change. Sure. And, and, and when I heard a certain sound, yes. we, we, you know, like we grew up in the fifties. We were listening to Eddie Calvert. We were listening to, you know, when he did, Oh, mine, Papa, that, that trumpet did something to me, you know, and then, 
of course the guitar became popular and really the whole the whole English world changed anyway when when the shadows appeared and Hank Marvin really beget a whole generation. If you, you if you look at Mark Knopfler, if you look at you know any Gilmore, any other guy, Jeff Beck, he, he'd be the first one to say. And I yeah. I, did, I did produce a couple of tracks on Jeff, and you know I got the hem of the garment, so <laughs> that was a, an honor for me. Even my school. I was at school when I watched the Yardbirds. And from the arranger side, this was a side that was floating my boat, you know, from both sides of the fence. So when we got uh, to, when I graduated, the year I was graduating, uh, ironically, I had formed a, a rehearsal band to try out some compositions. We were called Shacklock at the time. And we were rehearsing in a, in a basement of a high rise in London at the top of that building, there was an artist called Roger Dean. Right. Roger Dean was the, sort of, now he is the legend who your listeners may know the Yes records. That's probably what he's most famous for. Yes, anyway, he, he came down and, and said, hey, you guys are pretty good. It was just a bass, a drummer, and a, 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 some pickup guys that I knew. And he said, why don't you try and get a record deal? And I said, well, I really don't know the first step how to do that, you know. He said, well, it, I'm working for record labels as a, an artist. He said, I've done a couple. There's this band called Yes, and, you know. And I said, well, yeah, so great. So he said, here's here's 15 numbers. Ring them on Thursday night. I'll get you a gig. I know Jack Barry at the Marquee. I'll get you a gig at the Marquee. Nice. And invite them down. Of course, they all said they would come. One showed up. Uh-huh. And then we didn't hear, hear from him for a while. I thought, oh, that may be a dead duck. We started to play out gigs and things with the band. And then I, I found a little message on my phone saying from my mother, who I was living with my parents. <clears throat> and uh, she said, Nick Mobs from EMI has called you. Is that important? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, probably yes. <laughs> So, uh, you know, one thing led to another and Nick called us and said, I want to, you know, bring you in for a meeting. And uh, at that time, there were four, four guys. Um, Dave Hewitt was bass, uh, Richard Powell was drummer and Dave Punchin, who was a real prodigy. He was a guy I used to go and watch. He was a, a jazz player uh, and I loved his playing. Um, and he, he, he joined the group. So we uh, decided with the record company we needed a front man. From that time, again, I was doing the vocals. I'm not the greatest vocalist, but I can get by with some backgrounds and maybe some lead. But anyway, they said, oh, we, we want you to concentrate on the arrangements, the guitars and all that stuff, which was a nice way of saying, well, you're not the singer. Yeah, a nice way of saying. <laughs> okay. Okay. I went, all right, fine. So we did all these crazy auditions and <clears throat> Janita Hahn, showed up and we weren't thinking of a girl singer but uh, we had one american manager at the time who said uh we we were trying to think of the name they were going to call it shacklock and i said i don't want to carry that weight <laughs> so they said that this american manager says i've got a great name for a group it's babe ruth and i said i don't know what that is whatever it is it sounds good stick it down and we literally put it down on the contract on the day when we signed and then, of course, Jenny had spent her high school years in the West Coast here. Her family had moved to Fairfield. Right. 
So anyway, she uh, she said, I know who it is. It's it's a famous baseball player in the, in the States. And of course, we we learned that it uh, and it would be a bit like sort of calling a group in the States W.G. Grace or something. Who was yes, yes. The grandfather of cricket. You know, you, yes. no, nobody knows. Nobody cares. You know, yeah. but it, it's it, it was a bit like that. It's a bit silly, but it, it stuck. So we went with that. And Roger did indeed do the first album cover. Great. And then uh, we were grandfathered, of course, at that time, Abbey Road was owned by EMI. We were signed on Harvest Records, uh-huh. which Pink Floyd and ELO and all, all those bands, Roy Woods Wizard of yep. the time. This is the early you know, 70s. And there was a six foot seven guy behind me, I'm going to name drop, who was working the tape machine, whose name was Alan Parsons. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> I really didn't know about that side of it. I really didn't realize the importance of the scientific side, the technical, the engineering side of it. Until, until I got in there, I'd just come off the academy and I'd had all that training. We started to see musicians like Stan Salzman coming through. Sure. On the last year, my senior year, I guess they call it here, um, uh, we had Johnny Dankworth come in right. as a professor, interestingly. Wow. Yes. And, and we formed uh, a jazz band workshop that we did on Friday. It was the highlight of my week. Uh-huh. It, we had a really killer jazz band with all the young players. And then Stan was in the section. Uh, my dear friend, uh, Peter Jacobson, who is now passed on, was in the, in the section. He was a keyboard, uh, actually a blind keyboardist. Right. Uh, and uh, you know he was incredible he, uh, playing Fender Rhodes and anyway that was such a wonderful period there because it it also was the academy opening up a little bit more to let a jazz band in there was yes. like wildly living on the edge you know yes. so yes. so we're in Abbey Road number two and we are um, making the record that we called first bass. It was mostly my compositions. And look, I said, I've got an idea for a piece. Uh, I want to use a string section. And they went, oh, great. Yeah, fine. How many do you want? Nice. <laughs> These were the days. Yeah, those were the days, baby. Yeah. <laughs> and I went, okay, well, I, I've got this idea. I, I, I've got this, this piece that I absolutely love by a composer called Vila Lobos, um, Pietro Vila Lobos. And it's called Bacchianus Brasilieris. And what it what it features is eight cellos and an oboe. So I stole the 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 thing, or say borrowed, <laughs> borrowed that lineup for a, a song called The Runaways. Uh, and uh, that was my first sort of delve into booking the session guys. That morphed into more stuff. So I thought, oh, okay, I can book sections. Great. So I started to you know, open up a little bit on, on that album. Of course, they wanted rock and roll. We did keep it in that vein. Where the second album, which uh, I apologize for because I, I got the, I got in trouble for it because I went crazy. We got a new drummer, uh, Ed Spivak, and Ed had come out of kind of the funk world with, with people like Max Middleton, your, your, your listeners might know, Clive Sharman, uh, bass player. And he'd come out of a, like a, a group of musicians that were, we had a phenomenal band in England called Arrival at that time that were like a funk band. They were, they were just top notch. 
and Ed could play everything. So I went crazy on the second record and wrote all this different stuff, you know, and I booked people, um, you know, to come in. We had Steve Gregory came in, who was a friend of ours, came and played tenor sax on that. Uh, he played flute, also doubled on flute. Um, uh, I booked a string section and my leader was John Giordiardis. We went into the third record, which was our dear friend, uh, Steve Rowland. Indeed. And Steve was brought in to, to produce that record. I'd been a naughty boy on the, on the second record. So they thought, okay, we're gonna, <laughs> we're, we're gonna have a, have a headmaster for Alan. And they brought Steve in to make me behave. Yes. So he did, he did a great job. He's great with the vocals, he, particularly with vocals. He, he was really good, especially with, the, uh, with Jenny's vocals. He was, he was, I then left the group, got married, uh, loved the recording studio. I didn't want to leave when I hit Abbey Road number two, because you, when you hit those rooms, you just, there's a shadow that must come through you, you know, knowing that certainly the Beatles had stood in there and done all that stuff. And right. you know, and also more more importantly, the shadows yes. <laughs> for me. So I then morphed into more arrangement, more production. People were calling me to do their arrangements and 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 more production. Right. And by the eighties, I had a, a couple of bands I'd been working with were very good. I, I realized the song potential in the bands because as a producers we. You know, it's all about the song. If we don't have the song, we, we don't have anything. Indeed. Uh, this, this band were particularly great writers. Uh, they were called The Look, and we got a runaway single called I'm In Demand, I Am The Beat. And it got top five, I think, in England. And, and uh, my, because you know what happens in England, like in, over here in Billboard, you see the band and then you see produced by. Richard Niles, produced by Alan Shankoff. So the phone rang and my next call was Dexy's Midnight Runners. There's a great story about this, really. It was, I couldn't understand a met the word a man, the manager said. He was so broad, Geordie. Yes, uh, indeed. I, I, <laughs> it was good. He said, we want you to come in. Kevin would like to do some work with you. The same place, EMI, Manchester Square, where the three grumpy old men were sitting, the same grumpy old men were there. Kevin had been through... 25 producers or something i don't know that and it, i was the last at the end of the day and i went in an office with just kevin and um i was a big fan of this band richard i loved what they were doing because they were really emulating the soul bands in the 60s i must say they were they had an original sound it wasn't just emulating the soul they had that soul band thing with this gypsy thing going on and with right. this folk thing going it was a great combination yeah, right. of elements yeah definitely absolutely i didn't i wasn't in that phase i was in an earlier phase when it, when it was really just the horns and the band right so it would have been a year is 82 maybe anyway so i get there and I'm starstruck with it a bit, you know, as you are, and 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 uh, I, I'm going. I can't believe I'm getting this call because you, you know, I didn't say this to him. I just went in the office, shook hands with him, and if you know Kevin, he's interesting man. He, mm -hmm. He's intense and should be. But yeah. um, we we sat in this office and I listened to three songs. One was called Show Me, and one was called Plan B, and the other one was called Liars A to E. 
it, it was a very good, very well done. It was very well mic'd. It was very well well put together. But the band sounded so ragged. It it, it didn't sound. Dexys were a tight band when they first came out. The horn section was tight. They had a, a drummer called Stoker. Um, and the, the drummer was powerhouse, solid pocket guy. You know, and, and everything I loved about those bands. And Kevin, of course, was Kevin. He, he great, you know, character lead voice. So I thought, well, what do I do here? Do I tell him the truth? Tense moment. And I knew he was a little bit, you know, precious about his stuff and should be. This is not not derogatory in any way, because I have every every respect for this man. So I said, I really can hear the potential in the songs, but what happened to the band? What happened to the band? And what I, I remember my words that I'm a fan of. Yes. I nice. kind of got it out on a, on a backhanded compliment. Very nice. So silence, 20 seconds silence. That's a long time. I mean, I, 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 thought, yes. oh, I, I thought that's it. I'm out right. of here. You have been the only one who's been honest with me all day. He said, all the others have given me this bullshit, basically. And, then, and I said, well, I said, I, I really hear it in the songs. So he said, well, be honest with you, the band split up last week. <laughs> and there's a whole new band except the trombone player. That was fortunate. Next thing, I'm on a train to Birmingham and rehearsing with them. And then we, right. brought, we brought them back into Abbey Road, which is one of my favorite rooms. And we recorded eight songs, I think, for the best of they came back again to me when they were forming the band that you had mentioned, like the folky violin. Yes, they, yes, they, yes. They'd taken on uh, those players and they'd gone into that gypsy thing. Yes. Um, so Kevin came back to me two years later and said, we want you to produce the next record. And I said, well, that's great. Thank you. He said, can you, you know, can we choose some rooms? And I said, yeah, great. And, and so we drove around London and we looked at some rooms, different rooms. He said he really didn't want to go to Abbey Road again. He wanted to go, no, nothing against the studio, but oh. he wanted just a new vibe, new light. I said, okay, what's your time frame? And he went, now, I want to go now. Monday, I want to be in the studio with you. Nice. And I said, well, uh, I cannot do it. I said, I am producing an album right now for Meatloaf, the Meatloaf, which was Meatloaf's fourth record. Right. And I said, I am booked until, I can't remember the month. And he, I said, can you wait? He went, no, we've got to go. We're under contract. We have to move. So I said, I'm so disappointed. I can't do it. I'm sorry. Uh, he said, well, who should do it? And then I mentioned some names. Um, I believe first I mentioned Tony Visconti. Right. I then mentioned um, Alan Winstanley and Clive Langer, who were right. my, my dear friends from, <clears throat> we, we had formed the Producers Guild in 1986 in England with Indeed. about 12 of us. And Sir George was the chairman. And right. there was there was Gus Dudge and Alan Parsons was part of it. There was Peter Collins. These were all the, the producers at the time that were yes. really tearing it up and, and you know, top of their game. And, and so, I believe Alan and Clive ended up doing the Common right. Island 
That, um, that has been a fantastic walk through your career, which, you know, I, I it was wonderful because I didn't have to do any work there. But <laughs> I'm going to start doing a little bit of work now. First of all, it was fascinating to hear all that because a lot of the people that you mentioned and a lot of the things that you were doing when you were growing up, I mean, all through my teenage years in London, I was going to clubs and seeing those very bands, Chris Farlow, yep. uh, you know, all I just, I saw The Who, I saw Hendrix, yep. I saw all these people playing in little clubs, the Make pretty it. things, uh, Tangent After, all those people. So I was a big fan of all that. What I'd like to talk to you, I mean, I've got a, a number of questions which I really yep. want to talk to you about. Feeling a bit tired. Thinking of getting an early night tonight? Forget it, because I'm Richard Niles, and instead of sleeping, you could be lying in bed listening to my podcast, Radio Richard. Intriguing interviews and pulsating performances from master musicians like Chick Corea, Barry Manilow, Lyle Mays, and Michael McDonald. Hey girl, I want you to know I'm gone. Don't be a wimp. You can sleep anytime. Don't miss a moment of the fun. Subscribe to Radio Richard.